Good to see you guys. Welcome to St. James. Uh, glad that you're here. Glad for whoever's uh, watching on the live stream that you're watching with us too. Uh, check out the announcements. There's uh, um, everything's on uh, today except for no youth uh, catechism class. 
We're not going to have that. We'll pick that back up again next week. Uh, uh, prayer this evening at 5.30 and the new members class at 6.30. Uh, anybody is welcome to come to that if you want to. Um, everything else there you can read. Bible study this week, uh, youth group, uh, Zoom Bible study this um, uh, Wednesday night. If you're interested in C.S. Lewis and the Screwtape Letters, uh, let me know. I can send you a link to that. And we're kind of working our way one letter at a time, uh, studying the thoughts of C.S. Lewis. So uh, let me know if you want to be a part of that. Um, Stacy Stocky is going to come and talk about uh, ladies' Bible study. Good morning. We have a Saturday morning ladies' Bible study group for ages 18 and up that meet here in the church basement. And we are starting a new session. It's the same book that we've been working on since right, right before spring of this year. But it's a new session, and it's about our calling in life. Do you know your calling? Do you know your purpose? Come join us on Sundays. This is open to all women, 18 and up. And we're going to talk about that primary calling in our lives. We're studying Philippians. If you don't have a copy of the book, come see me after church. I can get you the questions for this Saturday, so you can jump right in. And then you can order one online. Also, we are going to be doing a teen high school girls Bible study starting in about mid-October called All Things New. And this Bible study is going to be focused on 2 Corinthians. And we're going to be meeting at one of our teen girls' houses who's decided to host this for us, and we'll meet at my house too. So if you're interested, teen girl in high school, come talk to me about that one as well. You'll get more information before we start. Okay, please stand, and let me open us up in prayer, and then we'll continue in worship. Let's pray. God, uh, you know our hearts. Uh, you know that we uh, are not capable of serving each other and loving you like we should. And what we need from you this morning is yourself. We need your forgiveness, but we need your power. We need you to work your resurrection power out through us so that we can worship you with true hearts and that we can uh, love each other and serve each other and that we can be on your mission. And we pray that you would do this for your own glory and for our good, for your own name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's ask God to confess our sins. And you'll see in this uh, prayer of confession, uh, this is uh, language taken from Isaiah 6. Holy, 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 you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness frightens us. It fills us with awe. It fills us with wonder. What else can we do but fall down before you and confess our woe? We are lost. We are a people of unclean lips and unclean thoughts. The light of your holiness only reveals the darkness of our sin. Holy, 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 you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is white hot, converting our sin. Send your seraphim to us with burning coals from your altar, that our guilt be taken away and our sin forgiven. Holy, 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 you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is frightening, all-consuming. Sanctify us to your service. Make us holy that we might be your people, that we might reflect your glory and serve you forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray, whoever stands before the altar of heaven, our mediator, who presents before your holy majesty 
our prayer and supplication now and evermore. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
from Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Jeremiah 11, one of many texts in Scripture which pictures God's servant as suffering like a lamb on the behalf of others. The Lord made it known to me and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let's cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. But O Lord of hosts who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading from James 3 going into chapter 4. This connects with the uh, uh, gospel readings from this week and last week, which both talk about, they both talk about the disciples arguing and how arguing is a sign of uh, lust for power. Uh, James talks about it here. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Christ has arisen. 
Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So uh, Jesus uh, predicts his death and resurrection here. So th- there's, this is going to be simple. This is like Christianity 101. Uh, the first two points, Christianity 101. And then the last point will be an application of all that. This is the first time... Um, this is the second time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection in Mark. He does it three times, Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. He predicts his death and resurrection. There's something besides that prediction that binds those, uh, these three things together, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. But um, uh, super simple. I, this, is a, uh, uh, this is kind of in your face of what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us what's going to happen. He's telling his disciples what's going to happen. And then he's also telling them what it's going to accomplish. Like what, he's going to do something, and then that thing accomplishes something. And then he's going to tell us at the end what we should do with that. And basically, that's kind of, that's kind of how Christianity works, right? It's not conceptual. It's not philosophical, although there are concepts and philosophies involved. But it's primarily God doing something that something accomplishes something. It's got a meaning and a purpose to it. And then there's, so what are we going to do with it? And it could be any number of things. That last part, the application, it could be, you know, more genuine worship. It could be, um, you know, loving and serving our neighbor better. It could be some sort of like new pattern of thinking that we need to develop. And um, so that's what we're going to do. Talk about what does Jesus say is going to happen, what he says it's going to accomplish, and then what we, what, what we should do with that. So quite simply, Jesus What's going to happen is he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men, verse 31, and they're going to kill me. And then after I'm killed, I'm going to rise three days later. That's pretty simple. And for those of us who, like, who live on the side of Easter, okay, yeah, that's just like all Christians sort of know this is the case and believe in this. The disciples aren't quite at that point yet. Uh, verse 32 says, uh, that d- describes the disciples two ways. They did not understand the saying, and they're afraid to ask him. So they're confused. They're confused about what he's saying, uh, which I, I know that like it's low-hanging fruit for a Christian pastor to be like, can you believe these disciples? He says it real simply. He's going to die and rise three days later, and they just don't get it. Like, how dumb can you be? Like, how faithless can you be? But, but honestly, like, how were they supposed to get it? I mean, all through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been saying really cryptic things to them. There's a lot, it happens a lot that Jesus will say something and it's this real sort of like weird parable thing. And they're like, we don't get it. And they ask him in private later. We, we, we read something like this a couple weeks ago. Remember, um, uh, Jesus had said, it's not the things that go into a man that makes him sinful, but the things that come out of a man. They're like, what in the heck does that mean, Jesus? And he's like, do you guys, you, you still don't understand it? It happens a lot. I mean, it, like you wouldn't blame him, right? For being like, okay. You're going to die and three days later rise from the dead. What weird parable is this? Like, what does this mean? They just didn't have it in their toolbox to understand that. One of the reasons why is, here's a little history for you. The first century Jews, faithful Jews, almost all of them anticipated that someday God would act to vindicate his own name, renew his creation. And when that day happened, Rome would get kicked out and the dead would rise. Daniel 12 teaches this. Ezekiel teaches this. Job talks about this. If there's going to be the resurrection of the dead in the last day, 
None of them though, none of them thought that there would be some sort of like kickoff event where just one person rose from the dead prior to everybody else rising from the dead. That's brand new information. Jesus is introducing something new into the formula here, that there would be a solo resurrection from the dead, which presaged mass resurrection from the dead. So this is really just brand new material. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not weird that it confuses them. Okay, if we were there, we would be confused too. They're also afraid, it says. They're afraid to ask him. Well, of course they are. Like, they sided with this guy because they thought he could kill the Romans. And now he's dropping on them. Actually, the Romans are going to kill me. And they know, like, we're on your side. We're going into battle. If you're planning on dying, that means we're going to end up dying too. Of course they would be afraid, right? This is not, this is, this is just a normal response to what Jesus is saying. Also, like, just think about our lives as well. If you know, look, if you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, and you know that one of the things it means, I'm kind of like, this is a prelude to the sermon. One of the things it means is that because Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer too. Aren't Christians confused and scared about that? Aren't we like, no, 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 we don't want to suffer. Like, we want to be in charge. We want everybody to do what we say. We want a culture where people, like, look up to us and think that we're cool and relevant. And that they elect Christians to make Christian sorts of laws. Of course we do. And when somebody says, no, actually the church is going to lose and that's how it's going to win, that's confusing and scary. We're not any different than the disciples are. Like This is our world too. Jesus tells us what he's going to do. He does it and it freaks us out and confuses us. Now he tells us what he's going to do and then he tells us what it's going to accomplish. Now you have to look a little bit hard for this. Okay, some of this is like, okay, I'm gonna need you to pay attention to me for the next five minutes. I'm going to give you a warning. It might be boring. And just kind of hang in there and like, you know, uh, thinking caps on as the old ladies who taught me when I was in elementary school used to say, like try and lock in here because what Jesus says is not plain to us, although it would have been really plain to his original hearers. Look down at verse 31 again. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. I'm not going to say that that's not confusing, but if you know what to look for, he explains in there what that death and resurrection is going to accomplish. And it circles around the title, son of man. Look, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to die and rise from the dead. He could have said that, it would have been true. He doesn't say the son of God is going to die and rise from the dead. He could have said that and that would have been true. Although it would have been weird because he never calls himself the son of God. Other people call him that and he accepts it, but it's not what he calls himself. Instead, he uses the title son of man. Do we know what the Son of Man is? Well, so it's a little foreign for us. It's, it's Jesus' words, right? You know, he calls himself Son of Man a lot. But the reason why he calls himself Son of Man is because the Son of Man is an interesting Old Testament character that Jesus wants his disciples to know, that's me. Now, let me explain who this is. Again, this is going to be maybe somewhere between weird and boring, if that's possible. Daniel, the book of Daniel, it's apocalyptic. There's lots of crazy visions in there. In Daniel chapter seven, Daniel has this vision where he sees four beasts and the beasts represent the kingdoms of this world, the political powers that be of this world. And the kingdoms rise up against Yahweh and Yahweh's people, determined to crush them. This is easy call for Daniel to be having visions like this and be preaching about stuff like this because they're actually living under the authority of one of the beasts in Babylon. 
They're slaves to this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel has this vision. And in these, this vision, the four beasts rise and they're powerful. And the people are like, how can we ever get out from under these beasts? But Daniel sees in this vision, thrones are placed. This is from Daniel chapter seven, verse nine. And the ancient of days took his seat. That's Daniel language for the creator God. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So imagine the scene in Daniel's vision. There's the four beasts and they're brought into trial. And there's the ancient of days and he sits upon a throne and there's 10,000s of people worshiping him. And he brings out the books to judge the four beasts. And the four beasts are found wanting and they're condemned. And one of them is executed, but the three others are stripped of their power completely. They're allowed to live, but they're stripped of their power completely. And the next scene, this is so God vindicates himself. The creator judge of the world puts down the pagan political governments and he is left alone, ruling supreme. But now this interesting thing happens next. Verse 13, Daniel, Daniel's still having this vision. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a, check this out. There came one like a son of man. So in this vision, Daniel sees this guy who's a human. He calls him, this is poetry, right? He's Hebrew poetry. And he says, I'm, I'm seeing this vision and there's one, there's a human, there's like one like the son of man, like a son of man, like a human being who's coming up to the throne. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So out of all this mass of worshipers and the deposed kings who were in chains before him, there comes up a single solitary human being up to the throne of the ancient of days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So in this vision, this one solitary human being brought before the throne of God and is invested with universal, eternal political power. The son of man in Daniel 7 is given the power over all nations. What does he say? All people, all nations, and all languages are going to serve him. So it's a crazy vision to have if you're in exile in Babylon. You're part of this little tiny slave ethnic group in Babylon. And here you are having these wacko visions where your God, your personal God, not Marduk, not the God of Nebuchadnezzar, but Yahweh, your God, is someday going to give authority to a king to rule over the whole world. That's a pretty gutsy vision to have when you're a little tiny slave group. But that's the vision. So what are we talking about? Like, what, what is this? Five, 600 years before Jesus' time. That's five five to 600 years for the people who are reading the Old Testament to be hoping and waiting for, and longing for, and looking for this son of man character to show up and rule the whole world. All right, fast forward to Mark chapter 9 to our text. Jesus says, and they know that he already has stated that he's the son of man. The son of man, this victorious universal ruler, is going to die and rise from the dead. You see what Jesus is doing? He's taking these two truthful things. The power that the creator God is going to exercise through me, he says, over all people is going to happen. I am the son of man. I don't cease being the son of man. I'm not giving up on the dream. This is not defeatism. But I'm going to win through dying and rising from the dead. He wants them to put these two things together. It's, it's got to be confusing for them. It's confusing for us. How the suffering Jesus, I mean, 
Jesus is kind of a loser God, right? He's a dude, construction worker who gets killed. His people are kind of loser people. We're kind of lame. We are the weak and the foolish ones of the world. And yet that's how he rules over the world. And for those who have ears to hear, that's how he's always, always done it. All right, you, and you, you guys, the disciples knew this. You guys know this. How, let me ask you this. Let's talk, let's, let's, let's talk politics for a minute. How was Joseph able to become the head of Egypt at the time, the most powerful empire in the whole world? How was Joseph able to do that? Slavery. His brother sold him into slavery. After making the split-second decision, let's not murder him. He gets sent off into Egypt as a slave. He gets thrown in prison, falsely accused of sexual assault where he's left to dwindle there for a while. That's how God takes over Egypt. How does Esther become in charge of the Persian empire? At the time, the most powerful uh, empire in the world. She gets stolen from her family and thrown into a harem with everything that that means. She becomes a sexual object for a male with power who sees women as sexual objects. So you guys understand, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying, and that makes it good, right? Like, what Joseph went through is good. What Esther what is not good. What Esther went through is not good. But I'm saying that that death that they, all, that they experienced, the horrible lives that they experienced, were the tools that God used to take over Persia. God is the king of Persia. He exercises his authority physically through Esther. How did Daniel become the most powerful person in Babylon? At the time, the most powerful empire in the world. <laughs> By being stolen from his home, nine 90% chance Daniel and his friends were castrated in order to serve as um, um, servants in the king's house. They're forced to serve a pagan king who destroyed their hometown, blew up the temple of their God, no doubt murdered some of their own family and friends. That's what God uses to take over the world. If you look at any sort of king with political power, like godly king in the Old Testament, that path is always through suffering. It's always through brokenness. It's always through death and resurrection. It's, it's the way it always works. And what Jesus wants the disciples to see here is like, this is just a part of the pattern. I know it's hard for you guys to get it, but it's my suffering that will be the tool that I use to rule the whole world. Again, I, I quote this almost every Sunday. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They are explaining to the resurrected Jesus himself how they know he can't be the Messiah. They don't know it's him. And they're like, yeah, we thought he was the Messiah. He's prophet mighty in word and deed. We thought he was going to take over the world, but he ended up getting killed. And Jesus says to them, oh, foolish of heart and slow to believe. Haven't you ever read the Old Testament? And he explains to them, Luke says, he explains from Moses, explains from the law and the prophets how the Messiah had to suffer. This has been coming down the pike for a long time. Jesus' suffering means that he is going to be the king of the whole universe, that he is the son of man, that he stands before the ancient of days. And that all nations and all tribes and all ethnicities and all tongues bow before him as Lord and King. Literally, not some sort of like, he's, he's God of my heart, you know. I mean, I hope that's true. But literally, he is the king of the universe. He is the king over the whole world. That happens because he suffered and died. Now, what should we do in response? All that's just basically Christianity 101. What should we do in response? Verses 33 through 37. Let me read, if, you, if you don't mind me taking a minute to read this again. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? This seems like a non sequitur. Jesus says, the son of man is going to die and rise from the dead. And then the very next story is the disciples uh, keeping silent. They were on, because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. There they are again. In the, 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 the reading last week, there are the disciples arguing. Here they are again, arguing. Why do we argue? 
I don't have to tell you because we already read the James text. We argue because we want to be in charge. We argue because somebody else isn't listening to us and we need them to listen to us. And if I yell just a little bit louder, they'll listen to us. Every argument centers around the question, who's going to be in charge? Who's the greatest, me or you? So they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. That seems like junior high stuff, right? Like who does that? Who's like, you know, I'm the greatest here. Like Angela and I, we have arguments, but we never, I'm never like, Angela, I'm the greatest in this house. And she's like, no, you're not. I'm the greatest. But every argument we do have, like we're too mature to say that out loud. But every argument we do have circles around that question is who's greater, me or Angela? Everyone. The argument about where we're going to go to dinner tonight or how should we deal with the stubborn recalcitrance of one of our children. Uh, it's, it's all about who's going to be, and you all have had these conversations with your spouse or with your friends, or if you have kids with your kids, or if you have parents with your parents, the question is like, who's, who's the greatest one here? And it's, it's, you all had these conversations where it quickly moves from the topic that you're arguing about, that that quickly becomes irrelevant to the question of who's in charge, who's the greatest, right? There's the, uh, the, um, the, I, the Everybody Loves Raymond episode. Do you remember this where they go on vacation and they come back and they, they're bringing the luggage and one of the suitcases gets left on the landing of the stairs and it sits there for like six days and nobody discusses it until um, Raymond's father brings it up. You know, why is it sitting there? And then it turns out that the wife thinks it's, just, it's the husband's job to take to deal with the luggage. And the husband thinks it's the wife's job to deal with laundry. And so the luggage just sits there as a sacramental object to represent the fact that they both want to be in charge of the other one. It, we, you all have conversations. The reason why it's funny is because we all have places like that in all of our relationships. We might not say out loud, I don't, I don't even know what the disciples were talking about. Maybe Mark has just sort of like boiled it down to the, the bottom line for us. Maybe it was like, you know, who's got the best shoes or like, who does Jesus like the most or who cast out demons with the most flair? Who knows what it is? But the conversation is a very common conversation to all of us. And what it does is it represents the fact that I want power. I want power. Now, here's an interesting fact. Jesus predicts his death, like I said, three times in Mark. Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. In each one of those three times, check this out. In each one of those three times, his prediction is immediately followed by disciples saying, nope, not listening, we want power. We want power. Now, Mark 8, the Mark 8 and Mark, 8, Mark 10 texts, we're not going to get to this summer because we actually read those back in Lent. But if you remember, I'm, I'm just going to give me 10 seconds to summarize these real quick. Mark 8, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And then Peter's like, no. Peter like pulls him aside and rebukes him and says, may it be far from you, Lord. You'll never die. I'm counting on you to help me kill a few Romans. You're not going to die. And Jesus grabs him and says, hey, listen, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking God's thoughts, you're thinking man's thoughts. In fact, if anybody wants to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and come after me. Take up your instrument of execution and come after me. Mark chapter 10, very same thing. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. The words are barely out of his mouth when James and John come up and say, hey, that's cool, Jesus. Can we ask you a question real quick? Can we be like vice messiahs, the two of us? Like can one of us sit on your right hand and on your left hand when you come into your glory? And Jesus is like, no, you can't handle that. You, look, whoever wants to be greatest among you must be the servant of all. In fact, he says in Mark 10, like, even the son of man, even I, 
even the one who stands at the right hand of the ancient of days with the authority of all nations under his belt. Even I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Three times. And then we have this text where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Very next thing that happens, the disciples are arguing about whose grace. What's the point? What's Mark trying to tell us? Mark, Mark is trying to tell us that points one and two of the sermon. Jesus does something. That something accomplishes something. That that should always lead. There's other things you could say here. But the, 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 the trail Mark wants us to go down to is the death and resurrection of the Messiah should always lead to Christian death and resurrection for the sake of the kingdom. We must become slaves to all. Jesus died and rose from the dead so that we, in our own Christian lives, would daily die and rise from the dead in our interactions with others. Now he says this, to, well, first of all, like I, I told you the stories from the Old Testament where it's the case that uh, God's people get power over the pagan, even when they're slaves. In the case of uh, uh, Joseph, Esther, and Daniel, do you think it's a coincidence that in all three cases, when a Jewish man or a woman ruled over the whole world, do you think it's a coincidence that in all three cases they were slaves? That's not a coincidence. God's people are never more in charge of a culture than when they're the slaves of that culture. This is the way it works in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read this to you. I think this is crazy good. All right, so I'm going to, again, you know, Daniel's weird. Revelation is weird too. Uh, John's having visions. Uh, of course, it's apocalyptic literature, just like Daniel. And in, the, in, in Revelation chapter 12, he's having a vision of this cosmic fight between the enemy and God. And the enemy, Satan, is pictured as this great dragon. And I'll just, it's a, uh, spoiler alert, Satan gets beat. Let me tell you how it happens though. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, not a coincidence that this echoes Daniel chapter seven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The dragon, the serpent, Satan, who accuses Christians night and day has been thrown down and defeated. How do you think that happened? The answer is Jesus, of course. You guys have all gone through Sunday school, but that's, it's true. It's true. It's the blood of the lamb that does it. But actually John in his vision sees something different. It's not just the death and resurrection of Jesus that has caused the defeat of Satan himself. Here's how it happens. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, who's they? It's the brothers and sisters who are accused night and day before God by, the, by, by, by Satan. They have conquered him. You guys have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb. This is not, of course, Jesus, the, the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection, of course, is at the heart of all this. But it's not just that Jesus does it and we kind of sit by and watch it. We're actually allowed to participate in the defeat of Satan himself. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony because, check this out, they loved not their lives even unto death. See what John is saying? You know how Satan gets beat? It's the blood of the lamb and the resurrection of the Messiah working itself out through the faithful unto death service and slavery of his people. That's how Satan gets beat in the end. Satan doesn't get beat because we're somehow in charge. Satan gets beat because we're slaves. It's the end around. 
It's, it, it's the crossover dribble that Satan did not expect. It's the curveball that he couldn't hit because he thinks that Christians always throw straight. He thought that the battle was going to be on this line here. I'll get it. I'll put my politicians in charge. I'll put my culture in charge. And the Christians don't rush to meet it at that line. By the power of the blood of the lamb, they go around. Okay, we'll be the slaves then. You, you, you can have that. You can have the power. You can have the politics. You can have the culture. We'll just be the slaves of everybody. That's how Satan gets beat. There's two ways. Keep that in mind. That's, that's, that's what Mark wants us to know. There's two ways here. There's two kind of cool things here in the gospel reading where this comes out. First of all, I'm going to look first at verse 35 and then at verse 37. But verse 35, he's going to make this point here. The point is, is that by ministering Jesus, by becoming slaves, we minister Jesus to others. When we become servants in Jesus's name, we give them access to the great servant, Jesus, okay? So, you know, Jesus says back in verse 31, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead. Verse 35, look there, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You can, in your mind, if you want to, link that with Mark chapter 10, where he says, the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give himself a, 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 a ransom for many. He's calling his disciples to be the servant of all. You want to be the greatest? The greatest, the most powerful Christians are the ones who are slaves to the most people. By far, the greatest one is the one who is the slave to all, right? Why is that? Because when we're slaves to other people, each other, unbelievers, whoever, we are actually embodying the great servant, Jesus. Look, there's, there's lots of places in our lives where there's opportunities to be slaves where we don't want to be slaves. You know, maybe, uh, maybe it's the annoying customer that, that comes into the shop and you know they're just trying to pull one over on you. It could be the selfish coworker who doesn't like to do a whole lot of work and piggybacks on your work and then wants to share in the credit when you get, you know, when you get the acclaim. It could, be, uh, it could be the annoying person in your community group. And all these places, you know, it's, it's difficult to serve. It could be the kid who's kind of a problem kid. But okay, so here, here's the deal. Like, what do they need? What do those people need? Well, they need to straighten up and do right. Oh, that's true. That's true. Like people who come in and like, you know, I mentioned the example of my friend last, last week, the people who come into a restaurant and complain at the servers because that's how you get better food or, you know, that's how you get the free dessert. Those people just need to be slapped around a little bit. Maybe, you know, actually what they need is they need us to serve them. Why? Because that might be the only way that they're ever going to see Jesus. Look, Jesus doesn't come to us with power Jesus doesn't come to us. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't have a power. Jesus doesn't frequently come to us with wise, witty sayings, and we're like, oh, dang it, that's true. Jesus, you just straightened me out. Jesus comes to us hanging on a cross. And when we give ourselves to people as servants, it might be the only time in their life that they have contact with Jesus. We become portals of Jesus to these people who need to have somebody serving them because they're used to fighting for everything that they get, whoever that is. So that's the first thing. We minister Jesus by serving him. When we serve others in the name of Jesus, we actually minister Jesus. But now check this out. This is really cool. Look at verse 37. This is a twin thought to verse 35. Whoever receives one such, it takes a child, we'll talk about that in just a second. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What's the difference between that and verse 35? Think about it for a second. Here's the difference. In verse 35, we embody and represent Jesus by serving each other. But, listen to this, super important. In verse 37, 
when we serve other, we serve others, they embody Jesus to us. See what that says? Whoever receives one such child in my name, it doesn't say whoever receives one such child in my name is showing Jesus to that child. That's true, but Jesus is taking a different angle. Whoever receives one such child in my name is receiving me. By receiving and serving and loving self-sacrificially that child, you're actually receiving and loving Jesus. Do you want want to know God better? I I know you do because a bunch of you say to me, like, I I wish that I could know Jesus better. Like, I long to, like, know he's really real. Do you want to know Jesus? He is actually explicitly saying here, you meet the face of Jesus in service in his name. Almost the same thing that he says in Matthew 26 in the teaching of the sheep and the goats. On the last day when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats and he divides them up, the basis upon which he divides them up is not, did you ask Jesus in your heart or not? It is, did you give me food when I was hungry? Jesus asked people, did you give me food when I was hungry? Did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you visit me when I was in prison? And those who are his are going to say, like, I don't remember doing that, Jesus. And he's going to say, whenever you did it to these, you did it to me. You want to see the face of Jesus? Go to prison and visit the prisoners. You want to see the face of Jesus? Give food to the hungry. You want to see the face? You want to know God better? Serve other people. That's our contact with God. It's, so, so service is not just charity, you know? It's not like, oh, we have a lot. We'll help out the people who don't have very much. Like, serve others, we're showing them Jesus. Simultaneously, they're giving us Jesus. It's this reciprocal being swept up into the vortex of life in the Trinity that happens in service. Because that's, what, that's the heart of the cross, right? That's the heart of Christianity is the cross. And we make contact with it by being cross and resurrection people. So what does it mean by children here? We got to talk about this because honestly, this does not have the weight that it needs to have post Mr. Rogers, you know? Like I, th- th- those of you, some, some of you are old enough to remember the whole children should be seen and not heard. Like, you have relevance in the culture when you can produce. And, but by the way, I mentioned this last week, right? How does our culture value people? Can they produce and are they autonomous? Can they produce and are they autonomous? And, and kids can't do that. Kids depend upon parents. Kids don't make anything. They just, they, they suck out of their parents' lives and out of their teachers' lives, you know? I mean, you know, by, by the grace of God, like the payback is later on, right? I mean, that's, that's our culture's notion is that kids take. And so they're marginalized. Now, not now, thanks to Mr. Rogers, but honestly, you know, we shouldn't give Mr. Rogers credit. Let let me, you guys realize how weird this is. This grown man takes a child, it's not his child, takes a child and pulls him in and gives him a hug and says, you should, whenever you serve one of these little kids you're serving me, that's weird. In the ancient world, you don't hug little kids. You ignore them. The fact that Mr. Rogers can exist, the fact that you and I think, that's not weird. Hugging little kids is really nice. That's a credit to Jesus who normalized the hugging of kids. But but outside of Jesus in the ancient world and in most places, even in our own country, a hundred years ago, kids were not treated like this. Kids were marginalized. So what we have to do here is we can't really think about kids too much because um, kids aren't marginalized in our culture. Sometimes they're made too much of. The pendulum has swung the other way. Instead, what we need to think about, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, find the marginalized. Find whoever the kids are in your culture and go and meet them there and serve them. Because when you serve the marginalized, you're actually serving Jesus himself. 
You're showing them Jesus, but you're getting Jesus back yourself when you serve the marginalized. All right, I'm, I'm, let me just real quick here. Uh, seriously, two minutes. I'm going to give you some practical things, and, and then um, we can be done. All of you have the marginalized in your life. You all do. The, every one of us has the person in the workplace who's kind of the oddball. Maybe they laugh a little bit too loud or they laugh at the wrong things. They're kind of weird, and so people aren't really looking forward to hanging out with them. Go to that person and love them in the name of Jesus. You will not want to do this because you're not weird. They are weird. Everybody has people like this in your class, the kid that nobody really wants to hang out with because the kid's just an oddball. Like you, in the name of Jesus, go to that kid and love that kid. I'll tell you, tell you a quick story. As a friend of mine at a previous church named Clint, and when I knew Clint, he was a student at SIUE in the engineering program, and Clint decided, so Clint was walking around through the quad in campus, and he saw that there was a group of college students who were out in the quad, and they had dressed up in medieval costumes, and they had foam swords, and they were doing fake sword fighting in the quad. And he thought, oh, look at those dorks. And then, like, he was walking around, and he was like, everybody was making fun of these kids. And you know what Clint did? Clint was like, he was like, I felt so bad about, like, my attitude. He went and got himself a foam sword and went and joined them because he wanted to share their shame in order to make contact with them. Like, go and do it. In the name of Jesus, go and do that. Whoever the kids are in your life who are playing with foam swords and medieval costumes, find them and go to them. So I was, uh, um, my mom and dad know this guy. When I was a freshman in high school, there was a, um, a guy who was, a, I think he was a junior, maybe he was a senior at the time. He was a senior. And he was cool, and he was really good at sports, and I was a huge dork, and I wasn't good at anything. And like when I say I was a huge dork, she asked my parents for pictures of me when I was in junior high. You will not be able to resist laughing. And I'm not saying that with any sort of like self-deprecation. It's just an honest, objective assessment of who I, who I am deep down inside. <clears throat> this kid whose name was Daniel decided he was going to be my friend. I don't mean just that he was going to be nice to me in the hallway, although that would have been enough. I was starved for just one normal person to acknowledge my existence. And I'm not kidding you. He would call me and be like, hey, do you want to go hang out? Do you want to go play basketball? I'm going to run to Taco Bell and get something to eat, and then I'm going to go to the park and play basketball. Do you want to come with me? Like, honest to goodness, that changed my life. He, Daniel, Daniel is a pastor now. And I know that a, a, a big chunk of why I'm a pastor is because that guy connected with me. Like find the dorky Aaron Miller in your life and go to him. Find anybody who's, think about who's marginalized. It's easy to do. Just ask who isn't productive and who isn't autonomous. Immigrants, the poor, prisoners, little kids, the unborn, people who are marginalized Go and serve them in the name of the Jesus because Jesus promises that the power of his own death and resurrection is powerful enough to bring in the kingdom of God, is powerful enough to give you contact with the face of Jesus himself, is powerful enough to throw down the dragon. It's not, this, is not, this is not sanctification by works either. This is Jesus, it's the, the power of the blood of the lamb doing this, but it's working through us as we love each other. Because baseline, last comment, I'll be done. Baseline, 
you and I are the outsiders. You might not have been a dork like me in junior high. You might not be an immigrant. You might not be a minority. You might not be dressed up in medieval costume with a foam sword in the middle of the quad at SIUE, but you are an outsider. You are an alien to the fellowship of God. You are outside of the power of God's love until Jesus Christ, with his own blood, by the power of his resurrection, pulls you in and says, you are my child. He takes outsiders and makes them insiders. He does it through service. That's what Mark 8, 9, and 10 are about. Okay, stand with me and let's pray, and then we'll have communion. Father, you're such a good God, and you love us so much, and you know that, um, that we're so weak, and we're so self-protective, and we're so prone to um, isolation and self-defense. We're so prone to arguing. As much as we don't want to admit it, we all think that we're the greatest, and we resent other people whose own beliefs that they're the greatest uh, challenges us. Uh, God, we need the power of your son's death and resurrection. We need to live at the foot of your cross. We need to live inside your empty tomb, knowing the power of your son, Jesus. Not, Not by way of worldly triumphalism, but by way of finding out that your glory and your energy and your kingdom come about through that death and resurrection and through that death and resurrection worked out in our own lives. Lord, in your mercy. Father, help us to serve the children. Help us to serve the marginalized. Help us to serve those who are of no account. Father, I pray that you, especially this morning, um, uh, Sue Hasselbring, uh, our missionary with uh, International Student Ministries, uh, a father who uh, uh, called me last night and asked me to pray for her. Father, would you be with her as she's on this mission as well? She asked us to pray that you would bless her Uh, upcoming uh, lecture seminar that she's giving to uh, a best practices, uh, a best practices conference in Michigan over how to best love and serve Afghan refugees. Father, would you be with her uh, ministry there? Would you stir up in the hearts of the people uh, their concern for immigrants and sojourners? Would you work in our own hearts that same concern for um, immigrants and sojourners and all the marginalized? Would you give us love for the unlovable? Would you help us find community with those who are outside the community? Father, we need your Holy Spirit to do this. We're so self-protective. It's not natural. Please, Father, I ask you in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to love the children. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because we were outsiders and you made us insiders. Because you united us to your Son, Jesus because you called us your daughters and sons, because you pulled us close to yourself and wrapped us in your arms and you allow us to ask you these prayer requests as children ask their dear father. And so we ask you to do all these things in your will. We pray this in the name of our brother, Jesus. Amen. If you can confess your faith with me with the words of the Apostles' Creed in the bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. 
From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
I may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Whenever we are in community and serving each other in the name of Jesus, we're experiencing life in the Holy Spirit and we're actually making contact with God himself. Now you have an opportunity to actually do that as you talk to each other, get involved in each other's lives, figure out ways to better love and serve each other. Go in peace.